Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. The professor, Jeff Benjamin, has a day off. He said he was going to go off and plant some trees in honor of Earth Day. I think he's out playing golf and drinking beer down in North Carolina. Maybe he planted a tree, but then he swung of the club, too. So we're going to have to quiz him about that next week, I think, when he comes back. But to our great pleasure and delight, we have pinch hitting for Jeff Investment News' very own special projects editor and longtime colleague, Liz Skinner. How are you doing today, Liz? Happy Earth Day. You're doing a lot for ESG, I heard, right? Yeah, thanks, Bruce, for letting me sit in for the tree planter, Jeff Benjamin. Big shoes you got, the big golf shoes you got to fill there, Liz. <laughs> yeah, Earth Day <laughs> is a uh, a big day when you're the editor of ESG Clarity, so thanks for- But you're for, getting bombarded, uh, you said, with, you know- surveys and news bits and pieces from all these big firms coming out with ESG research and the like, right? Exactly. Everybody decided that they needed to have something to release on (laughs) Earth Day. So they all chose today. And meanwhile, we had our own features planned and such. In fact, Jeff wrote a column before he uh, took off. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. (laughs) So it's been a busy day. But again, thanks so much for having me on the Investment News Podcast. Yeah, of course. We have a really fun episode today. We have two great guests coming up in the second half. We have Natalie Kenway, uh, the editor of ESG Clarity, which is one of Investment News' sister publications out of the United Kingdom. So you'll be hearing Natalie coming up. But first, we have a longtime industry analyst and a guy I'm really happy to have on the podcast His name is Dennis Gallant. He actually was an old colleague of Jeff Benjamin, you know, way years ago. And uh, as an analyst, and Jeff went off into the reporting side, and Dennis is stuck in the analyst side, and he's now with the ATE group. And we're here. We invited Dennis on to talk about our IBD report card, which we do every year. And regular readers, investment news, some of you probably know it. We kind of rate. The, where the IBD industry is, LPL, Raymond James, Commonwealth, Ameriprise, what kind of year they had previously and where they're going right now. And we got some pretty interesting nuggets of information out of that, I think. So we wanted to have Dennis Gallant come aboard and, and talk about it. So Dennis, very happy to say hello to you on the podcast today. Thanks, Bruce and Liz. Thanks for having me on board. And I feel slighted by Jeff. You know, I thought we were good <laughs> friends and we worked together. But, you know, if, if golf is more important or saving the earth and then, you know, connecting with me, that's fine. So he's um, a tree but, hugger. You know, what can you do about that guy? Huh? That's he loves right. I can't trees. knock him for it. No. So looking forward. So, Sometime you know, down um, the road we'll have you back, though, and you can you and you and Jeff can reminisce perhaps a little bit. Sounds like a plan. So we, Dennis, you and I, are, we have our story coming out this week on the, on the website and in the newspaper, the IBD report card story. And it's a big, you know, we have tons of data and the like. You and I, I interviewed you for, I've interviewed you several times for this annual story over the years. You always have great insight into IBDs. You're always happy to share it with us. So we really appreciate that. And this year, you know, 2020 was a year like any other, <laughs> right? I mean, you had like, 
offices shut down, people forgetting to hit the mute button on their Zoom calls and embarrassing things happening, service-oriented businesses really having to adapt quickly. And, you know, the brokerage, you know, person-to-person brokerage model, financial planning model is a very service-oriented business. But we found that in the, the top 25 largest independent broker dealers reported around 26 and a half, 26.6 billion in revenue. So that's a little like a billion per, you know, that ranges from LPL and Raymond James and Ameriprise down to some other mid-sized kind of firms. And that was up in terms of total revenue, total revenue we're talking about now, up 4.3% from 2019. So despite the pandemics, despite the S&P 500 dropping 34% in the span of you know, four or five weeks back there in, in February, March, despite all the confusion, despite all the difficulties in technology, the industry was pretty resilient overall. Uh, so I was very impressed with that. And, and, and that I think that's reflected in the story, that kind of sense of, of how resilient the industry was in the story. But what was very interesting, a nugget of information out there, and this is what I, we wanted you to talk about a little bit, was that for the first time in our survey, well, we let's back up. We break revenue down into three categories, fee revenue, commission revenue, and other revenue. And for the first time, fee revenue hit 50% of total revenue of those big firms collectively. And seven or eight years ago, commission revenue was 52% of the total in 2013. And in 2013, if you remember, that was the big non-traded REIT days, right? When guys were selling commission products, non-traded REITs were 7% and the like. So I've been writing about this industry for more than 20 years now. And from day one in 2000, when I first started at Investment News, the brokerage industry has been talking about and beating the drum on fee revenue. Fee revenue, this is how we're going to sustain ourselves, be, be more like advisors, have revenue come from fees. And after 20 years, it finally seems like we've reached some kind of tipping point. So that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about first and what you guys at ATA Group are saying. And if you could just describe what you do at ATA first a little bit or your history and then get into what I'm talking about, if you don't mind. Sure. So so it's it's pronounced ITA. I take, I know, apologize. But, I no, apologize. no, because you know it's a problem when you phonetically spell it out on your website. <laughs> so um, I think it means I like, like partnership or something you know? in Japanese. No, you're not the only one. I think virtually everyone. So and so, <laughs> you know, I I is a research consulting firm. It they they service the financial services marketplace. So they have verticals looking at wholesale banking, retail banking, you know, and payments. Um, we have a capital markets team. We have an insurance looking at life, health, property, and casualty. We have across industry practices looking at cybersecurity and fraud and AML. And then there's the wealth management team where where I find How myself. How many analysts or people in all do you have? So, over at so the firm is around uh, sixty something analysts spread worldwide. So certainly, you know, we that's we, a good we have size coverage. group. Yes, so we have a you know U.S. office and in a London office, but we have people located throughout Europe to throughout the US and, and Canada as well. So, and actually the firm weathered the storm fairly well because a lot of people were remote to begin with. And I think, I think in general, especially the US and North America, I think you mentioned, you know, they saw revenues going up. You know, the difference between, I think the, the last crisis of 2008 is financial services was part of the problem and 
And I think this time around, it's it's part of the solution, right? And so I think, huh. you know, 2020, you know, and I think especially That's 2021. Very, I like that. That's a very concise, interesting way to put that. I've been, I've been right. struggling for 12 months to put it, to sum it up like that. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, well, what wealth management is a demand. People are looking for advice, right? Broader array of advice capabilities. So I think there's certainly a tailwind here for funding for a wealth management marketplace, but that doesn't. There's still challenges there, and I think it's you know when we look at this shift and we saw it across the board in the financial services, you know that firms have finally crossed that 50% mark in revenues or percentage of assets that are tied to fees, uh, and this has been an ongoing effort. You know, I, I think. You know, it, it accelerated actually coming out of the out of the last pandemic, right? I'm not a pandemic, last uh, market downturn, 2008. You know, there was a huge effort, and coming out of that, it was very interesting. You know, the effort was, you know, well, I've got to have greater control over investment management. I've got to be broader. I've got to be more holistic. So advisors realized they need to have deeper relationships with those clients, and I think it just accelerated this move towards wanting to be fee-based, having those deeper relationships, and having wanting discretion and control over the investment management process. I, I used to joke that I used to cover the RA marketplace pretty heavily, and everyone says, so what do you think? The RA is going to take over the world? I said, no, the RA isn't going to take over the world. It's just that everyone's going to look like an RAA. And so we're, we're getting closer and closer to that effort where we've been pushing fees and pushing fees, and it takes a while for that transition to happen. That transition is also taking place in the training, so you have new entrants coming in that are planning that are, that are advisory oriented and you have, you know, advisors that have been through five or six years of making this transition are fully over that way. And, and the marketplace is also accommodating more of it. So they're allowing not only you to operate under the corporate umbrella of the RAA, but you're also able to now operate with your own ADV as a hybrid, or you're able to operate as an RAA only depending on the structure. So right. I think just, that- let's, just let's slow down just for a second. Okay. So if, you know, if you are an LPL or Raymond James advisor or, you know, an Ameriprise or a Commonwealth advisor, how are you moving your book? I mean, Commonwealth has been one of the biggest, most successful firms at doing this, if that's been your goal, right? Getting to fees as a percentage of revenue. How do you move your book of business, your clients over from the product or commission side over to the fee side? Do you have LPL, for example, likes to talk up their model wealth portfolios and the like that, that, that seem to be increasingly popular. That's something they always mention on their earnings calls and and, and in investor relations presentations. Right. So certainly in the early days of transition of fees was difficult, right? In many cases, firms went off to become an RA, you, you tied yourself to a TAMP. But as the managed account market really built out, the broker deal, especially the independent broker dealers, have an infrastructure a place where you can actually follow into a process where there's risk tolerance profile, a proposal generation, there's an asset allocation component to it, there's a monitoring. And so for the advisor, conducting and doing fee-based business or advisory business became easier and easier. And so, and it became more mainstream in, in, in communicating to clients and, and, and discussing it. So, you know, where it took initially advisors maybe three to five years to migrate their book over to, to advise you from commission, you know, that, that journey is much shorter. And again, and it's so also it started with the turnkey asset man, so-called turnkey asset yeah, management he, programs, right? Which would be an outside third party, right? Uh, yeah. So of, that would have been like an kind. SEI or an asset mark in the marketplace or Brinker. These were turnkey solutions. And, you know, when the IBD market first looked at the advisory business, it was more of an accommodation approach, right? It's like, well, we're brokerage industry. 
DBase is sort of a small niche to the marketplace. Why don't we just use these third-party turnkey solutions for those that are looking for it, right? And, and that so would have been were, mid to late 2000s we're talking about. Yeah, even a bit earlier than that even, right? So you saw a lot of these coming up in the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. But yes, so turnkeys were more popular there. And, you know, it wasn't amountable to any significant revenue. So firms sort of just said, yeah, it's a great accommodation. This isn't our bread and butter from a revenue standpoint. Obviously, that's changed today with the numbers that you're you're talking about. Right. Yeah, we're getting into the tens of billions or at an LPL or a Commonwealth, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of assets here. Very significant right. amount of assets tied to fee. So, you know, fee obviously has tremendous benefits. You know, typically as you spend more time with your clients, you're you're discovering more needs that they have, right? It, it's sort of a foster or a, a catalyst for looking in broader, more planning services and capabilities. So the advisors to be fee-based tend to have those deeper wallet share with the clients. They tend to uncover more asset needs. And so there tends to be consolidation of those assets as well. And so I think it's been a positive metric. But fee-based, as you get predominantly, also has its downsides. It, it's because you're spending more time with clients, it's not as scalable. And I think one of the, one of the, the issues, especially given a bull market, it's been that as you become more predominantly fee-based, you can earn more money each year without adding new clients, right? As long as the market appreciation is going. And so across the industry, it's not just unique to, to the IBD market. You had a lot of fee-based advisors that were probably a little lazy when it came to business development, new business development, client development, maybe got rusty at it. Um, and so you had a lot of IBD home offices thinking, it's great, but now how do we generate more business? How do we get them to expand and grow their business? Because again, you've got this annuity that kicks in. And again, if the market goes X to XYZ, you can make more money every year without having to facilitate a lot of new client act generation. I think yeah, I think that's that's fascinating, right? That's a that's a fascinating point because in the latest round of earnings statements, Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley both came out and said, "Hey, look at all the new clients and the and the new cash, the new client, right? The new, the net new clients and the net new assets that were that were that were pulling in." And by the way, we're Morgan Stanley. We're not going to tell you how many financial advisors work here anymore. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not material, you know. So the emphasis, as you say, there's kind of a somewhat of a backlash. Um, even though I think people are very happy with returns on last year, just in terms of revenue and net income, but there is is this kind of backlash, and and big organizations of scale are saying we have to bring in new clients. You can go if you're Morgan Stanley, you can go out and buy an E Trade, or that or that the the stock plan business from Canada that they, that they bought a couple of years ago. Right. And, you know, the, the wires have always geared to compensation to to drive more business development. Right. And right. so and they've you know, and they tend to trim advisors. So, you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons of because of that manipulation. There are a lot of advisors that say, look, I, I don't I want to I want to run my own practice. I don't want to be told what to do or what areas of business development need, I need to focus on. And so I think in some ways, while uh, that shown a beneficial, and and I think it's I think it's in the best interest for the IBD markets to look at business development. I think it's also a factor, probably driving more breakaways to go and and go independent, and saying, look, I don't want to be told what to do. I also think those business development numbers are broader because you know you have a lot of robo and hybrid advice solutions at the wires as well. So they're able they're they're not only providing advice to 
through the traditional financial advisor, but they're providing advice across a wider spectrum of consumers. So again, that's going to be an area where you see a lot of business development growth. And I think that's an area that IBDs are slowly getting into, but not, not completely there. So, but all in all, it's still been a good year. And I think clients, you know, we had that little rough period in the first part of the pandemic. I think there were a lot of advisors and clients laying low. And, and then, you know, as they realized the, the new normal was kicking in, uh, there was actually an uptick in demand for service and support. So, you know, we saw two things happen. We saw lots of advisors break away and go independent. And we saw lots of clients start to re-engage as the fourth quarter rolled around. And I think that's going to continue into, the, into 2021. Focus on business development. And uh, I think for many advisors, making moves. That's that's great stuff. Liz, do you got any questions for, for Dennis? I do. I wanted to ask how well the independent broker dealers have embraced kind of digital marketing and this new way of business development. So Liz, great question. You know, we did research in 2019 towards the year end, looking at digitalization among all the channels. And, you know, the IBDs and the REA advisors were, were the furthest behind as far as digitizing their practice. You know, I mean, these are experienced advisors. They're, they're very much tied to that face-to-face uh, personal relationship. In addition, you know, you have firms like a Merrill Lynch or, or Morgan Stanley that were building and they have a CIO team or a CTO team and they have a digitalization strategy they're pushing out to the marketplace. So, again, I think you know, they were further behind, but not completely out of it, right? I think most advisors had access to client portals and collaborative tools, and uh, they've just never bothered to tell their clients about them and how to use them. And I think the pandemic shows up, it's 2020. It's like, wow, I, you know, we're going to have to play catch up. So I think firms certainly are, are further along in that whole digitalization space. But uh, I do think it, the IBD market needs to, you know, you know, step it up a bit. You know, if you look at, um, especially that we're we're still in this virtual environment, I don't think things are going to go back to the way they were. We're not going to be seeing meeting with the client four times a year, maybe even not even once a year. I think we're going to see much more virtual interactions. And so, for for the IBD or any independent advisors, how do you convey that same trust? Uh, how do you convey and get the information? You know, when you can't read the the body language. So everyone's getting more accustomed to Zoom. And other aspects, but I think we're going to have to get further with digitalization. And I think it's a big factor when it comes to business development. So you have, you know, marketing automation tools that you see larger brokerage firms implementing. I think that make it more targeted, more, you know, you can start to put more customized feeds out there, uh, but it's not far behind. We know a lot of vendors uh, that service this marketplace from the investnet to the clearing firms and custodians are all looking to kind of support that marketplace. So I think the fintech infrastructure is, is really going to really carry the day for them. And, and so I think they may be lagging a bit to their wirehouse counterparts, but they're not that far behind. Dennis, what do you think would be like the next step on the fee side for IBDs or the brokerage business in general? We kind of talked you know, about the birthplace of it on TAMPS, and that was kind of a giveaway to people, like you said, you know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago or so. And then the evolution to model portfolios, better working and easier to deal with separately managed accounts. What would be the a fee portfolio of ETFs or something? What's the next thing out there for advisors to look for? So we're actually still in the age of discretion, advisor discretion. So 2008, Repis Portfolio man- Manager explodes, huge growth. 
And, and that's really, you know, been the dominant fee-based avenue for most advisors. I think it started to temper a bit with, uh, you know, with the fiduciary rule and the DOL, uh, and certainly with, under best interest that, that's moving in that direction. I think for law advisors, they're going through this transition right now of what's my role in, in managing the client's portfolio? And there's an effort, I think, among all brokerage firms to say, look, we want to build more model CIO, build out our CIO capabilities and offer more model portfolios, home office models managed by you know, the independent broker dealer and third-party models, wherever it may be from various asset managers. And, and telling the advisor, look, you know, in the world where there's a growing fiduciary standard, greater scrutiny, and lots of competition, you know, where's your value best placed? And it's slowly seeing that you know, at the low end of my book, there's some advisors saying, look, I'm delegating that small end of my book. It's inefficient. I can't, for the fee and the capacity to grow, I don't have time to manage every of those counts. And for others, they may look at that high end at the SMA side and say, look, the, the really high end clients I have, it's really going to require some sophisticated infrastructure and capability. And so advisors are sort of delegating on two ends of that spectrum. And I think, you know, while they may have always been never building their portfolios from scratch, right? They've always been utilizing and leveraging a third-party strategist or following a particular model and sort of making it their own and tailoring it to their clients. I think we're going to see much more delegation over the next few years of the advisor saying, look, I'm, I'm not the one actively managing the portfolio, but I'm picking the, the models. I'm picking the SMA managers. I might even be mixing it together with some other solutions I have. And if I am managing the money myself, well, I'm probably a larger team at this point in added expertise and infrastructure. So I think the, the big front now is what do you do if you're starting to be more planning and advice oriented, right? And now you're dealing with banking services and a wide range of services. How do I justify my fee? It was all based on that asset-based fee and the fundamentals of a managed account, meaning that I'm profiling, you know, and assessing risk. I'm, mon- I'm building the asset allocation and I'm monitoring it. I've got this ongoing piece. Well, if you're not involved in much, how, you know, planning used to be so episodic and comprehensive that advisors like, look, I don't do enough advice. Things don't change enough in plans for me to justify my ongoing fee. Um, So I think, you know, you're seeing firms really looking at goal-based financial planning, goal-based wealth management, where they're breaking down into more tactical and longer term. And you can start justifying your fee on that. The interesting take is, you know, at the same time, when you see this delegation happening, you also have tools that allow advisors to create a lot of differentiation in portfolio management they do. So direct indexing allows advisors, as it comes down in fractional shares, you know, to start building customized and tailored portfolios on a larger scale. Now, that could happen at the advisor level. It helps the skill set and infrastructure. But think about it. A CIO team at, at a LPL or a Kestra or what have you can start utilizing direct indexing to create their own indexes. To market out to that. So yeah, that's and, and really that could, interesting. And they could serve as an income stream as well, right? Because they can tag in, you know, some asset-based fee revenue into that. Right. It also opens the door for both ends, right? Whether it's the advisor that has the infrastructure or the home office CIO of our independent broker dealer to get into the whole ESG marketplace. Because you know, once you start being able to really own the underlying, you own those underlying securities, uh, you can not only do it from a tax optimization standpoint, but you can also start looking at it from an ESG piece. And, and that's the area where we're seeing a lot of growth. I think, I think it's still alignment of, of what, what client, you know, the, there's a different language going on. The client's not sure how to articulate what they're looking for for ESG and the advisor's not sure how to talk about it. I think the, the alignment is starting to come there. 
And you know, when we look at what manufacturers are doing from the in, from the asset management standpoint, what we look for, what's coming out of the model portfolio marketplace, there's a huge effort on ESG. Um, but I think for most advisors, we're really being driven into being planning oriented, right? That broader view, what you call it financial wellness or holistic advice. Advisors are going to be moving more into that. Asset management is just one of the components they're doing for their clients. And I think if they do it right, it's a matter of can they still do it and feel like they can justify their fee? I think that's, well, a, I think that's that, a big transition I, point. Right. That's great. I, I think, you know, to kind of wrap it up there, the, the we like to talk, Jeff and I like to talk about this issue of fee justification. Can you right. justify your 1% or your 70, your 100 basis points or your 75 basis points? That's kind of the range, right? The Of the, mm-hmm. of the brokerage model these days from 75 to 100 to 103, you know, in my reporting. So when does the fee pressure occur to this business model? How much does the fee base side contribute to that or help erode or buttress, right? That range of fees. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, at the same time, well, investment management is becoming more sophisticated, right? You can start integrating and layering annuities and, and alternatives into the into the process. It, it is somewhat commoditized, right? I mean, if you're just doing basic asset allocation Definitely. investment management, yeah. I can yeah. go to a robo and, and get a fraction of the basis points for this. So I do think there'll be a contraction on the fee, but I think, you know, the total fee on the advice side can offset that. You know, advisors can now start to justify, and I think it's going to take a while to build up that infrastructure, the habit of doing it. And again, I think it's more perception that the client's going to push back on this. But, you know, I know advisors that are looking at cash flow, doing lending for their clients. They're doing helping them save for a house on the short term. They're saving for retirement. They're dealing with issues that are non-traditional in healthcare. So I think the advisor, whether they recognize it or not, they were already facing margin erosion because I was always seeing advisors moving and doing more holistic than what they were doing and still charging the same fee that they were 10 years ago, but they were doing more services for those clients. The question is, is that they didn't really articulate what they were doing for the clients and the value of those services. So we're shifting this value proposition from investment management to advice. You're still delivering the same thing you did 10, you know, a few years back, but now you're articulating to the client and you're being more specific about it and deliberate about how you're doing it. It's not just a one-off you're doing here and there. I am helping my clients on a lot of healthcare decisions now, or I'm helping my clients through estate planning issues more often, or again, or I'm always looking at debt consolidation for those younger clients. So, so the opportunity is there, the, the demand is there, clients are looking for it. Will it impact fees overall? It might, you know, I, I don't underestimate the threat of AI and some of the technology, but you know, even in the digital side, you know, the hybrid advice models, people still want that human interaction. Um, I think uh, in in this world, every advisor has to be more digital oriented, and I think they'll adapt. And uh, I don't think there's an end to this industry anytime soon. Right. And if you're in an IBD, you really got to have a fee revenue strategy, it seems. Yeah. Well, I think everyone firm has to have some type of strategy. And and just like we did in transitioning to fees, where you you talked about it, Bruce, it was like a 20-year process, right? You know, planning is the same way. If you're going to be adding advice, you have to think about how am I going to transition to advice? How am I going to justify that fee? What are the services I want to offer? What services can I offer without having to add staff or or add X amount of time, right? Uh, Sweat equity that the advisor has to put in on a weekend, right? I think you want to be able to grow in a scalable fashion. And so, you know, firms really have to think about what is it they want to do? How do they want to position for the clients? But at the end of the day, 
clients are looking for trust and most advisors have trust with their clients. So whatever transition they go with, clients very rarely push back on fees if you're providing value. Right. And some old mark diversion line, right? So <laughs> a fee only becomes an issue in lieu of value. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's true, right? I mean, uh, you know, I can even use my own personal examples. You know, my, my parents raved about the advisor that I got them and never thought about performance or anything. They liked the service and trust. And in fact, even if I quizzed them, you know, at, at the time, I don't think they could tell you how they paid the advisor, right? But they knew that they got value out of that relationship. They met their goals they were looking for. They were happy with how that, that situation went. I think clients are more savvy than that moving into these younger generations, they have certainly more choice. Uh, advisors, I think, will step up to the plate for that. All right, Dennis, that was a fantastic discussion about fees and the evolution of fees in the IBD world. I think you're probably one of the only, if not the only guy we could have had on as a guest for that. So I re we really appreciate you coming on by the Investment News Podcast this week. Well, obviously, you and Liz appreciate appreciate more than Jeff Benjamin does because he's not there. But, but no, thank you for having me on and and everything. And and I really appreciate you taking the time and and thinking of me and having this conversation every year now for the past been a, a lot while. of years. Yeah, a lot of years. So too many. <laughs> All right, thanks, Dennis. All right, take care, everyone. Here at Investment News, we have created a brand new podcast focused on ESG and impact investing. Impact Adventures is aimed at helping advisors and investors learn how they can do things like fight poverty or displace hunger and all the different missions of the Sustainable Development Goals. That's right. Our first episode dropped this past week. We're taking a deep dive on the history of the SDGs. We're going to nerd out a little bit and learn everything there is to know about them. We're going to explore how investors and advisors can help in the success of those goals, but not just that, how aligning with the goals can improve one's portfolio or book of business. You can find Impact Adventures on the podcast page of Investment News. It's also on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google, Pandora, Amazon, anywhere that you get your podcasts. So check it out. So next up, we have Natalie Kenway. She's the editor of ESG Clarity in Europe, and she's joining us to discuss the Global ESG Summit, which Investment News is hosting May 27th, along with our sister publication, ESG Clarity. Thanks for joining us from London, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me along. So before we jump into event talk, let's talk a little bit about the ESG market in Europe. Now, you guys have been about a step, well, actually many years ahead of the United States in terms of the popularity of ESG. And now I understand that you even have some regulations that have been rolled out recently. Can you tell us about those? Yes, you're right in that the popularity of ESG has been quite ahead and it really has exploded across Europe over the past year. And on the 10th of March, the SFDR was put in place in Europe. So Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, which means that funds could be categorized on whether they explicitly invest for sustainable objectives or sustainability is just one of many considerations. The UK recently announced it would be the first country to make the Task Force for Climate Related Disclosures Mandatory or TCFD, 
we love an acronym in this industry, don't we? So companies will need to disclose their impact on the environment and hopefully ensure there's more transparency on the topic across the corporate sector. We've also seen the EU and UK announce more details on green taxonomies to demystify some of the technical terms used in the world of responsive investing and also ensure firms are labelling up um, financial products correctly. And just last week, there were some revisions on this announced as part of the EU's sustainable finance package, but but were all largely welcomed by the industry. You know, here in the US, it's been the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has kind of jumped all over ESG and is they themselves are considering creating some increased transparency rules for corporations. And they're already requiring investment advisors to provide more details on how they're approaching ESG with their clients. But I could talk about ESG markets all day. Let's get talking about this uh, global event that we're putting together. Why don't you go ahead and give us the basics, kind of the the where, the what, and the whens? Yeah, is this a virtual event? Still, are we still in virtual world? Or are we doing some in person? Or and where is if it's in person, where is it taking place, Natalie? The Global ESG Summit is all online. It's a virtual event, but the beauty of that is means that we can stream live across. Asia, Europe and the US and follow the sun around the world. So I think it's pretty unique in that sense. And all of those regions will have agendas that tailored to the audience in terms of the level of ESG integration that those fund selectors or advisors in that audience are at. So if I'm in uh, Singapore and and watching on my my laptop, I'm going to have an event geared towards me. And if I'm in New York, likewise, right? Exactly that. And you'll have the timings will all suit and also the speakers and panel topics have all been designed with that regional audience in mind. That sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I can vouch for that. It has been a lot of work. (laughs) Putting together one conference for one audience. I mean, Liz knows about this firsthand because she works so extensively on our, she's our special projects editor and she works on all this stuff. Just putting together one agenda for one audience is is a ton of work. I can't imagine having separate markets like this, you know, cross continent. Yeah, and I think that's where we're in a great position with the the Bond Hill and Last Word Media, the companies that we work for. We have got audiences and publications and contacts and relationships in all of those regions to be able to put together this um, really quite unique event, and we've also got. The United Nations Capital Development Fund um, partnering with us on this fund, on this on this event. So it's um, really unique. I haven't seen anything else uh, like that out there in, in the UK, it's in particular. Natalie, tell us a little bit about the keynote speakers that we're getting from the UN. So yes, we have the Executive Secretary Preeti Sina um, doing the keynote speech for the um, global audience. And she has only been in the role since February of this year. So it'll be great to hear what her plans are and have a sort of fresh take on the capital development funds and the projects they work on. And hopefully she's going to talk a bit about how they find financing and support for the least developed countries in line with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, Is she going to make any news, Natalie, do you think? She's she's a a pretty important person. Yeah, she is very important. I, I, I think... This is something that can't be missed. There will be so, there's some really interesting sound bites coming from Preeti, I'm sure. Right. 
And then the other speaker coming from the UN, of course, is Esther Pan Sloan. And she's going to be giving us a little bit uh, regarding impact investing, which is something that she has been, you know, helping kind of partner with the UN and get together private private companies and, and private funding for some of these projects. So that's going to be an interesting presentation that will be part of the U.S. event. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the, we've seen a lot of growth in, in the impact investing market, whether that's um, social impact or environmental impact investing. It's, there's, there's definitely a lot more interest. And so it'll be interesting to see the UNCDF's take on it. Hey, Natalie, can I just ask you about ESG clarity? Yep. Of course. <laughs> I was just, I was up looking at, at I was just a, a little while ago, I was looking at the website. It's, it's a nice website. Can you just tell me, you know, how much of that, it, who it's targeted for, what kind of news stories do you do? What's the publication cycle? And if I'm in, you know, a reader in the US who wants to get more ac- access to it, how do I find it and all that? So ESG Clarity is for fund selectors, advisors that are focusing on investing with a responsible investment focus. We have um, versions of the the website in the UK and Europe and Asia. And um, although a lot of the content is tailored to the audiences, we do share content as well, whether it's um, global pieces about the growth in ESG. I mean, the Morningstar have released some reports on the amazing number of fund or flows going into funds on a global right. level it's just it's been it's it's i mean i think the the word that they used was stratospheric um last year <laughs> with one of their reports not one i right. should have chosen to try and say right now but um yes you can find us at esgclarity.com and you can select which region that you are prefer to read about at the top on the top line whether that's asia us or europe some of the topics and news articles that we've covered recently, there has been a lot of regulation. I think I read somewhere that there's been six announcements from the SEC in a month on ESG, which is just crazy, isn't it? And we are looking at fund picks from fund selectors, lots of the looking into the launches that have been coming out rapidly increasing pace. Right. Yeah. And lots of people moving around as well. Um, people, lots of groups creating these heads of ESG roles or stewardship right. directors and um, diversity roles as well. There's been lots of movements as, pe- as, as, as asset managers and advisory firms realize that this is somewhere you need to be. Otherwise, in the future, you just won't be able to compete anymore. And if I, if I want to sign up for the event, how do I do that for the summit? So if you go to global-esg-summit.com, you can register there for the event. It's on the 27th of May, which is a Thursday. And yes, as mentioned, it will all the timings will be suitable for wherever you are based. And what are you personally most involved in or excited about with this thing? It sounds like it's, it's your baby in a way. Yeah, I've been I've been involved from the very beginning. Um, I can't claim it's my baby. My, my boss has to take that one. Um, I'll be um, be chairing um, a couple of the panels um, looking at changing consumer habits, the drivers behind the transition to a more sustainable future, some of the other key themes that we're seeing across the industry, such as biodiversity, corporate culture, impact investing, which we've already mentioned. And yeah, I am really excited to see what um, Preeti, the UNCDF Executive Secretary, says as well. 
That's great. Uh, Liz, do you have any more questions for Natalie? No, I think we've gone through the basics and some of the details of the presentations. I'm also looking forward to hearing from Preeti. She's a great speaker and always has something newsworthy to say. Well, that's exciting. I mean, Natalie, you're going to have an opportunity to break some news on, on, your, on the ESG website there. Let's hope so. Yes, I think, I think we will. <laughs> great. Well, Natalie, thank you so much. It's been great having you today, and we will want you, want you to come back after May 27th and tell us all about the event. Yeah, definitely. I would love to do that. Again, thanks for having me today. And yes, I look forward to continue working with you on your event. Thanks, everybody. That was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. And if it's Monday, it is time for another Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guests. Once again, Natalie Kenway of ESG Clarity, Dennis Gallant of the ITA Group, and longtime, you know, analyst, industry analyst at various places. We also want to thank Liz Skinner for pinch hitting for Jeff Benjamin this week. She's the special projects editor at Investment News. We also want to thank, of course, Stephen Lamb, our producer, one of the best there is. Of course, you can find us at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave a review on Apple, please. Follow us on Spotify. Click some of those buttons, people. Jeff's handle is at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm at BD News Guy. Please stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. 